0: If you would, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ezra, chapter 8. Ezra, chapter 8. As we continue our study of Ezra, we've come to the second part of the book, uh, which opens in chapter 7, it's 7 through 10, With op- opens with the words, After these things, that is, after the completion of the temple and the dedication and the joyful Passover. But as we saw last week, the words after these things actually involves 58 years. It's not like the next week or the next month or the next year. It's 58 years later. And as I said, this should be a lesson to us in reading the Old Testament. We have a tendency, not just with the Old Testament, but with history, to compress things and not, in a sense, allow them to you know, be day by day, month by month type of situation. When this happens... I think we really fail to appreciate uh, the things that happened in the past, and I think the possibility of learning from them is really diminished because we we view it in such a compressed way. Things don't stay the same. Kings come and go. It starts out with Darius, and then he is replaced by Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes, who is king when the second half, or the second part of Ezra takes place. We are introduced to the man Ezra, for whom this book is named, in this section. He is a direct descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. He is courageous in that he asked the king for things, quite specifically. He is a teacher well versed in the law of Moses. More than this, we learn that he devoted himself, he set his heart to study the law, to practice the law, and to teach the law. He's no ivory tower scholar. Uh, he has studied it, but he also keeps it. And he teaches it to others. When it comes with regard to his asking the king, one thing should become clear. And that is that Ezra just doesn't say, yeah, we'd like to go to Jerusalem. He is very detailed and specific in his request, which is seen in the king's letter. Because the king, his, you know, his instructions are quite detailed. And this could have only happened, I think, based on Ezra's asking. There's a certain courage involved in Ezra being so specific in his request. In the midst of this, last week we came to see that there are two aspects to reality, human activity and divine activity. If you look at verses 27 and 28 of chapter 7, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. And who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So we find Ezra asking. We find the king giving. He gives him a decree that he should go up to Jerusalem. He gives extensive financial aid, economic aid for the sacrificial system. And the Lord's hand is on Ezra. So it isn't just Ezra doing and the king doing. It isn't just human activity. There's also the divine aspect as well. Ezra says, listen, the only reason I had the courage to ask the king is because the hand of the Lord was on me. By the way, we read that three different times. So Ezra organizes, it's not a pilgrimage, it's a journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, about 900 miles. It will take them four months to make this journey. They gather at the Havah Hava, Canal, probably near Babylon, and Ezra discovers there are no Levites among them, which would really hamper the purpose of their going back to Jerusalem. He sends out men to recruit Levites, and they find 38 Levites and 220 temple servants who join them. Before they leave, Ezra proclaims a fast to ask the Lord for a safe journey, literally a straight road. One writer put it, faith in God is an adventure. We should not presume safety. Ezra looks to the Lord for this. He doesn't say, listen, I'm special. I'm a direct descendant of Aaron. Uh, God has put his hand on me. I'm going to be okay. He, in fact, calls for a fast. And he calls on the people to humble themselves before the Lord. There's no presumption that they will arrive safely. There's no assumption that because they are special, nothing bad can happen to them. Ezra doesn't want there to be human help, that is, soldiers and horsemen, because he told the king, listen, God will take care of us, and then it would be kind of strange to then ask for help. Uh, But the key to this is humility. As I said last week, if you or I were going to go on a 900-mile journey, All things being equal, I think we might pray and say, Lord, you know we're going to be driving. It's a long way. Keep us safe. But if we're going to get in a car to go to the grocery store or to go to work or to go visit a friend, we probably wouldn't pray. It's like, I've got this covered. I can do this. Uh, No problems. I don't think we would ever say that. But by virtue of the fact that we do not humble ourselves before God, we do not ask him for grace, for protection as we travel, we're basically saying, I don't need God in this situation. I'm okay. Ezra's humility, I think, is so instructive. um, and, And we should really take it to heart. Then we are told in verses 31 and 32 the hand of our God was on us and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. Now we should not take Ezra's example as a guarantee that every time I pray when I get in the car I will arrive at my destination safely. Um, Or that if I humble myself if I fast before God I will arrive at my destination safely. This is a very utilitarian view of praying. The reality is, when we pray, when we humble ourselves, we recognize our dependence upon God, and that is what is key. Today we'll look at the last half of Chapter Eight, which tells us about their safe arrival in Jerusalem. But something important happens first. Um, Beginning at verse number twenty-four, now in Chapter Eight, then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel presented there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 100 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. I said to them, you you as well as these articles are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to, to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. Before leaving for Jerusalem, Ezra takes all that had been given by the king, his advisors, and then the Jews who don't go back with them, all the freewill offerings, and in a sense he puts it all together and then he divides it up among the priests and the Levites. 650 talents of silver is almost 50,000 pounds of gold. 200 talents of silver, 15,000 pounds of gold, of silver. A hundred talents of gold, 7,500 pounds of gold. I would argue that Ezra's doing this shows him to be both a man of wisdom and of character. I think in dividing up the gifts, he takes a precaution against the possibility of being ambushed, of bandits. This way, if they get one group, they won't get the whole uh, amount of gold or silver. It will simply be that particular person's, uh, whatever it is that they have. But his character is shown in that he avoids the possibility of scandal. He weighs and divides the gift and gives it to 12 priests and 12 Levites. And he gives them the admonition. You know, this gift and you, you're both consecrated to God. You need to guard them carefully because when we get to Jerusalem, we're going to weigh this again and make sure that the amount that was given is what is received. We find this same action taking place in the New Testament. In Second Corinthians chapter 8, a chapter, by the way, that is often used by pastors to raise money. Um, in fact, what it is, is that as Paul preached to the Gentiles, he collected funds for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, most of the people who had money had gotten out of Jerusalem, the believers. There had been a famine. So the poor there need help, and so he collects money for them. And this is what he says in Second Corinthians 8. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. This person isn't named. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, while we administer, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. This is what we find in Ezra. He does what is not only right in the eyes of the Lord, but in the eyes of men. Uh, There can be no possibility of someone saying, hey, Ezra, why do you have all that gold? Why Why are you the only one in charge? And how do we know that the amount that you say is there is the true amount? So he divides it up. Beginning in verse 31, the journey begins and they arrive safely. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. By the way, do you think anybody knew how much gold and silver they had? It couldn't have been a big secret, and yet the Lord protects them. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hand of Miramoth, son of Uriah the priest, Eleazar son of Phinehas was with him and so were the Levites, Josabad son of Jeshua and Noadiah son of Binui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity, sacrificed, burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs and a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. Four things to note here. First of all, the people arrived there safely. The hand of our God was on us and he protected us. Secondly, the gift arrives there safely and is fully accounted for. There's no question that the numbers, the weight, it all it's there thirdly the people worship God when they got there with burnt offerings with sin offerings and lastly the king's orders to the surrounding peoples that they are to help out with the temple we saw this last week this isn't uh, something that is just on the Jews the king says that the taxes that are collected in trans are also to go toward the temple system now we come to chapter 9 Read the first two verses. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. A number of things worth noting. First of all, it starts out, as did chapter 7, after these things had been done. But it's not 58 years. As best we can tell, it's probably four and a half, maybe five months since Ezra gets there. And now a report is brought to him. You know, after he arrives, after the giving of the gift, you know the accounting fort and the sacrifices, everyone has sort of settled, and now he receives this report. He's given a report by the leaders, which is a term that's vague enough. Some translations have princes, which make them political, but uh, I think they could have been uh, religious leadership, political leadership, social leadership, just the leading figures in the community come to them. And the report has to do with two things. Intermarriage, but more than that, it's more than intermarriage. It is the taking on the practices of those with whom they intermarry. The offenders, those who are guilty of this, are the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites. The leaders and officials have, in fact, led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, this is where you need to be careful, because the people with whom they have intermarried are compared with an ancient people. The Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. At this point in human history, only the Egyptians continue to exist. The others have passed away into history. Uh, I'm reminded of Walker Percy's question, when was the last time you ran into a Hittite? Well, the Hittites are gone. The Jews remain. These people are not around when when the report is given to Ezra. So why are they mentioned? Because previously, almost a thousand years ago, God had given instructions to his people. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. If you know anything about Deuteronomy, it is the second, it is a sort of a recapitulation of the law. These instructions were actually given earlier in Exodus 34. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with them, with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare to you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and their daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Now let's be very clear. The problem that Ezra that is reported to Ezra is not simply a matter of intermarriage. Because then it would seem like this is like xenophobic, uh, you know, xenophobia uh, that he is, they're intolerant of diversity, they they want sort of a pure race, but it isn't just about marriage. It is about the detestable practices of the people that surround them. We need to remember the story of Israel. It began with an elderly couple, a man who was seventy-five and his wife who was sixty-five. They had no children. And God says, from you I will make a great nation. 25 years later, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, she gives birth to Isaac. Isaac then has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is a chosen one. He has 12 sons. They go to Egypt in a time of famine. And more than 400 years later, the Israelites who had been enslaved by the Egyptians are delivered miraculously by the power of God. They go to Mount Sinai, and there God enters into a covenant with them. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, you think of the gift, all that gold and silver, and Ezra said, you know, this is consecrated to God, but so were you. This is what God said when he called Israel to be his people. Now, a covenant involves terms. It's a contract. There are certain, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're not supposed to do. And what they're not supposed to do as God's chosen people, as his treasure, is to intermarry with people whose practices are detestable to God. And yet we find time after time after time. Israel breaks this part of the covenant. As early as the book of Judges. They hadn't fully conquered the land yet. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. There are those names again. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons. And served their gods. This is isn't simply a question of intermarriage. The issue is. Serving false gods. The report is made to Ezra. Because it was due to idolatry. And following the practices of their pagan neighbors. That the temple was destroyed 80 years earlier. That Jerusalem was destroyed. That Judah went into exile. And it's happening all over again. What is the saying? It's deja vu all over again. This is... This can't be happening again. The wisest and one of the greatest kings of Israel, Solomon, married foreign women and in the latter years of his life basically lived as a pagan. He worshipped false gods. And now it's happening all over again. What is Ezra's reaction Verses three, four, and five. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self abasement, and with my tunic and cloak torn, fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. While Ezra's reactions may seem very strange and foreign to us, I think we get it that this is a profound expression of the deep sorrow that he felt. Um, the nation has barely survived because of their sin. And the small group that has remained, we'll see in a minute, the remnant, It's happening there, too. I mean, when you go from big to small because of sin, and then you have small, and then there's sin, where do you go from there? Like, really, really, really small? I mean, what is going to happen to those who are God's people? He tears his clothing. He pulls out his hair and his beard. He sits down appalled. The word appalled appears several times. But he is not alone in this. I think that's worth noting. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Those who join him are those who tremble at the words of the God of Israel. That is to say, they took the word of God seriously. And the thought occurs to me, do we? Do we tremble at the word of God? I think oftentimes we don't read scripture as we should because we're like, oh, I know this. I've read this before. There's no sense of Isaiah in the temple, or Ezra here, of trembling before the words of God. The unfaithfulness of the people leads to his actions, but you will notice that they are still called exiles. See, I would argue that this isn't the group that came with Ezra, because they just got there. Okay, These are the people who came 70 years before. They've been there for two generations. And yet they're still called exiles. They were in Babylon. They were taken out of the promised land, out of the holy land. And now they've come back, but they're still called exiles. I find that really interesting. We've talked about this before, but in reality when Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews still see themselves as being in exile, and Jesus comes to lead them out of exile. This is the first group, the ones that built the temple. I mean, you would, I think second and third generations would almost see them as heroic. Look at these, these are the guys who built the second temple. And now, all these years later, they're doing the same thing that others had done that had led to God's judgment on them. What does Ezra do? He falls on his knees with his hands spread out to the Lord my God beginning in verse 6, and prayed, O my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage or in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the light or in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O oh our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded your commands, or disregarded the commands you gave through your servants the prophets when you said, "The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its people's by their detestable practices; they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not take or do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or make take their daughters for your sons." Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices, Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. If you were to do an outline, a structure of this prayer, begins with a confession of sin in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. And the second part of verse seven, the punishment on the sins. And then in verses eight and nine, God's grace in influencing the kings of Persia. That begins with Cyrus all the way up to Artaxerxes. And then in verses ten through fourteen, another confession of faith, I'm sorry, confession of sin, with specifics. This is quite specific and detailed. And then amazingly, verse number fifteen, it ends with a doxology. I would point out several things. The first thing that is so startling to me and I think really significant is that Ezra identifies with those who have committed these sins. Did you notice that? It starts out in verse number 6 with I and then after that it's we, our. We have done this, our guilt. I think, knowing me, if it had been me, I'm like, those people there, those are the people you need to deal with. And instead he, he kneels before God and says... We have sinned. We have sinned. He does not distance himself from his people. He could have protested his innocence, and he does not do this. Rather, in the words of Isaiah, speaking of the coming Messiah, he's numbered among the transgressors. Why? Why does Ezra do this? Because I don't think we do this today. We complain about. Uh, political situations and moral situations all these different things um, why do we not number ourselves among the transgressors and why does Ezra do it he is more ashamed of national guilt than he is ashamed of the individuals involved he sees himself as belonging to a nation to a people and so because of their sin he is implicated He's part of these people And so when he prays, he doesn't pray for those folks. He prays our guilt that we have sinned. In verses 10 through 12, the nature of the sins is specified. The guilt is not a question of Ezra's opinion. You know, I think what they've done is wrong. No. This is what the prophets told us not to do. And in fact, this is what we have done. I just find this really remarkable and personally deeply convicting secondly Ezra is profoundly aware of the effects of sin verse 7 the second part because of our sins we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today and then verse 9 though we are slaves our God has not deserted us in our bondage but they are in bondage he sees that I think the most powerful word in this regard though is the word remnant which appears four times verse 8 and then 13, 14, 15. The chosen people of God have been more than decimated. They are a fraction of what they once were. They are a shadow of what they once were. Why? Because they disobeyed God. They went from being the people of God they're still the people of God but now they're a remnant. Just a small part has been left. Um, Rosa could tell you more about this but when you use material and you have stuff at the end it's often known as the remnant it's the part at the end not always very valuable it's just what's left over Ezra's like we're a remnant that's all that's left all the good part's gone because of our sin only a remnant has been left but then thirdly Ezra is profoundly aware of the grace of God verse 8 But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious and leaving us a remnant. No complaint here. It is, in fact, a a profound awareness of God's grace. And then he goes on in verse 13 to say, God hasn't treated us as our sins deserve. Very much like our promise of forgiveness today after the prayer of confession. Verse 13, What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt ours what we have done and yet our God you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this and then finally he ends with praise with a doxology verse 15 O Lord God of Israel you are righteous we are left this day as a remnant here we are before you in our guilt though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence This, this scenario, this situation here is I think reminiscent of something that happened like way, way at the beginning of the covenant when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he was there 40 days and 40 nights and the people like, we think he's dead. And so they had Aaron make a golden calf and God was furious with them. Um, this is from Exodus 32. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people, stubborn Now leave me alone so that my my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. In other words, let's let's do a do-over. I'm going to just kill all these people. And Moses, God could in fact have started a new nation of Israel through Moses and the promise still been fulfilled. It would have been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky." And I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses argued with God and said, basically, if you destroy these people, no question they deserve it, but if you destroy them, your name will suffer. People say, oh, the reason that God brought them out with a mighty hand was so that he could wipe them out. Israel would be destroyed. Ezra does not do this he does not follow what we hear from Moses his prayer is a naked confession no excuses and no requests there's no pressure like most god if you if you destroy these people you know this is not going to be good ezra simply lays it out before god and says we have sinned it is really quite remarkable and I think has much to teach us what happens after that the Lord willing we will see next Sunday but let's, let's before we stop let's try to put this in perspective imagine if the Lord does not return where will we be in 50 years, 58 years I won't be here Some of you will still be around. I don't mean necessarily in this building, but on the planet. Your children will be. But will they still be walking in the ways of the Lord? Fifty-eight years is a long time. So much so that you can go from having a generation that by faith rebuilds a temple and then another generation or two down the line They're doing the same things that their forefathers did. We can learn from Ezra that we are to humble ourselves before God and depend upon Him. Apart from God, I think we will leave the faith. Our children will leave the faith. We have responsibility, human activity, but it's also divine activity. And we need to humble ourselves before God and say, if not for you, I would leave the faith. I would do the things I'm not supposed to do and bring dishonor on your name. And perhaps like Ezra, we should bow before God and not point the finger at others, but see ourselves as a community, as a nation, and say, we have sinned. We have sinned. Ezra's an amazing man. And we'll see this, the Lord willing, when we study Nehemiah. Because when he hears about this, he pulls out his hair and his beard. When Nehemiah hears about this, he goes over to the people who have intermarried and he pulls out their hair, he pulls out their beard. Not Ezra. Here's a priest who knows the law of God. And he stands numbered with the sinners, with the transgressors. And he confesses sin before God. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace, help us to see that we can learn from the things that happened in the past. As Ezra and those who trembled at your words learned, thus they confessed sin, that what was being done was not wrong simply as a matter of opinion, but it went contrary to your law. Oftentimes, much is made of the state of our nation, the state of the church. And it is very tempting, more often than not, to separate ourselves, to point the finger at those people, us versus them. I thank you for this humble priest, this scholar who doesn't separate himself, who is numbered with the transgressors and confesses sin. We don't know where we will be in 58 years. Many of us will no longer be alive. But for the next generation, will they be following in your steps? We are admonished to raise up a child in the way he should go. When he is older, he will not depart from it. So there is human activity. But the reality is, apart from your grace, we will not continue in the faith. Our children will not continue in the faith. Our grandchildren will not. And so we look to you in faith. We humble ourselves before you and ask that by your grace, we and the next generations would continue in the faith thank you for bringing us together today to worship you we thank you for giving Stacy another year and a good year for her with the coming of Ransom continue to strengthen her give her many more years now as we leave this place today may we have a sense of your presence not only here But as we walk through the world in the coming week, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.